Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is a guy called Gerald. And yes, we pretty much had to play Voodoo Ray at the top of the podcast. It's his most famous track, and arguably the biggest acid tune of all time. But it's hardly the end of the story for Gerald, as Ryan Keeling's interview with the Manchester Bread producer makes apparent. The conversation keeps coming back around to Gerald's passion for production and studio work. It's the unifying feature of a long and multifaceted career in dance music. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. A guy called Gerald, up next on The Exchange. So your career, I guess um, you could say it's been broken up into like three quite distinct phases. Yeah. So we like had the acid house years, if you like, and then sort of early to mid 90s jungle period. And then like last mm. decade or so, loosely speaking, like house and techno. So yeah. I wanted to kind of work backwards through these and sort of begin by talking about the here and now. Mm-hmm. So my first question was really like, where are you at now? Are you managing to spend much time in the studio? And what are you working on? I'm not spending as much time in the studio as I'd like at the moment because uh, there's never enough like hours in the day really for the studio. But I'm, I'm getting in there a little bit and there is a lot of preparation for what I have to do. So I'm doing a lot of preparation on the road and also like writing on the road too. Whereas like say 10 years ago, writing on the road was pretty hard. And um, 20 years ago, it was nearly impossible. So yeah, um, it's, it's, it's great actually. I feel like the times have actually moved with what I, I needed to do. So is the, is the main reason you're not getting the studio due to gig commitments? Would that be the simplest explanation? Yes, yeah, yeah. Like going out and um, playing live is, um, I mean, it's actually becoming like more of a passion to do that. And and I'm enjoying it more and more. Whereas like years ago, I used to hate it because it was like, oh no, I have to leave the studio, actually leave the creative process and and start to get more into performance. And like um, now, I've actually, I, I actually like, I enjoy the performance thing now. It's taken yeah. me like nearly 30 years. What would changed? <laughs> My attitude has changed. And um, also it's a different generation. There's a lot of people who have kind of grown up with, with the music. So they're a lot more responsive. They understand it a lot more now. So yeah, I think that's that's probably it. Like all of us, we've all changed. <laughs> yeah, no, I see. I mean, have things become more exciting on the sort of gear front, like technology-wise? Have there been things that have maybe like you know got you more involved and excited in performing? Oh yeah, for sure. Like I mean, like every time I uh, like have a look online, I see something. And I'm, I want that. <laughs> I need that. Wow, they were thinking about that. Wow, you know, I feel a little bit guilty because there's so many people kind of going down the road of 
like, um, oh, it's not like the original, is it? Oh, you know, it doesn't have wooden sides on it, does it? Oh, my God, it's not vintage. Ooh. And uh, I kind of, in my head, I've, I've looked at that and I've analysed it because I do that a lot. And I've kind of put it down to they think that stuff from the, the past was, like, quality because the machines were quality. But I think what I've put it down to is a lot of the producers were actually quality, you know, the producers and artists, you know, that was their life, you know, they didn't do that because they wanted to get like a couple of gigs, you know, like they, they actually lived in their life for the studio or for recording, you know, and, you know, I think that's the attitude that's needed now and then people will appreciate the machinery or the software even that's about now. If you gave like one of these old guys from the past, like uh, a bit of software to use, they, you know, it'd blow their minds, you know, mm. it's like, well, it's like forever expandable. You know, they yeah. would make, they make a tin can into, a, into an orchestra, yeah. you know, whereas now it's like, oh, I've downloaded this keyboard and it doesn't sound like someone from the past. So I'm gonna have to download it. Oh, then like three years time they're like, Oh, like MP3s or, or this download stuff is really rubbish because it doesn't sound like that really old, authentic track yeah. that I used to like. You know? Well, uh, yeah, to think about your theory for a minute, I guess if you're talking about like, you know, take the late 80s, for example, the barriers to entry were so much higher. So yeah. the people who wanted to get into making music would really have to want it. And I guess like you'd be talking about saving up for, for years in some cases to get yeah. the necessary uh, bits of gear. And before you had, before you got it, you'd read the manual from back to front, you know what I mean? And you knew exactly how, how it worked. Or, and, you, you know, there was no... Actually, there was less information about things because, like, there was not that information age. Mm. So, but, like, you would really... If you was hungry enough, then you would get it. And you would hear people's hunger in their work yeah. you know you, you if you really wanted to to get something or you really wanted to do something it was there so the people that were kind of half-hearted would fall by the wayside yeah or they would just not be involved i, I remember um like a few people like buying and selling 303s in the mid 80s <laughs> you know and like if you said that like now to someone who's just started to pick records up or something I mean, vinyls, sorry. Um, they would be like, oh my God, they sell their free or free. You know, whereas like years ago, it was like, oh, it's plastic box. You know, it's not a bass. It doesn't sound like a bass. And a drum is not a drummer. You know, this was like a constant thing that I would hear. I mean, I did a track called Emotions Electric because I was constantly getting beaten up for playing music that was non-emotional. It was blips and squeaks because it was synths, you know, and like, that was analog machines. Yeah, so I mean, at the time when you were writing music on this stuff, did you think it was kind of like somehow flawed and a, and a bit goofy rather than being something that was like, oh my God, this is incredible? Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, because you, you, you know, you're talking about instruments that were trying to emulate like, yeah. real sounds. And if you have people around you are saying like, this has no soul. Yeah, yeah, basically. So it, it was it was left, left of center. It was like the, the quirky people were into it, you know. You would go down to the the music shop and it would be like the bloke in like the like the Macintosh and like long hair and like you know his face was really grey and he'd be like trying to make helicopter sounds and Doppler sounds with like an SH one hundred and one and stuff like that you know and it was like kind of pre sampler 
So, you know, you, you would really, you know, you was trying to re make realistic sounds like dogs barking and stuff. With t synthesis, you know, and, you know, people would really get into how, you know, our sounds were created, you know, not just like, you know, grabbing bits and pieces. So you would get really deep into, into the sounds and also, there were people who would get in deep into the processing of the sounds and like, you know, there was all these different techniques and stuff mm. and you would swap things around. I would go into a studio, a recording studio, and I would spend a lot of time like with the engineers, like asking them different things about reverb techniques and how to use reverb in different ways. I mean, you would have a, a reverb like box and it would only have a certain amount of like um, the patches or whatever in it. So you would have to use it in different ways and like try and utilize what you had. I mean, there were recording processes where you would have to record things like a few times before you got a certain thing to happen, you know what mm. I mean? And like to do that today, I'm thinking would be, you know, I mean, for me, it's great. I, I mean, I still I still take time and, I, and I'm glad I've, kind of had the patience I mean because yeah. that, that was kind of one of the major things you needed at the time was patience you couldn't just download something yeah so. it's funny because um, I guess in those days if someone had offered you some of the solutions that are available now you would have bit their arm off and yeah. now we've got modern producers who are looking back to your era all misty eyed thinking oh god it was so much better it sounded yeah. so much authentic yeah for sure I mean I I kind of like the, the stuff that's available I'm like oh my god you can do you know, like I used to have to, okay, to put like a beat together, right? I would get a multi-track tape. That's a two-inch tape. Before you actually put it on the machine, you had to clean the machine, demagnetize it, and then you would put the tape on. You would have to spool it through the the heads onto the tape machine, and then you would like wind it through, and then you would um, like stripe it with some Simpty. So it would it would actually have a code on like say channel twenty four or something, and that would take like nearly half an hour at least before you actually switched this is any. Just for the preparation. Yeah, just yeah. before you switched any machines on or anything, and then like you would start switching machines on, and you would have to make sure that your MIDI, MIDI to SIMTI machine thing was like in sync, and if it wasn't, then you would have to rewind it back to the start, and sometimes things would drop out, and then they would come back in again. And you would have to go back then and re-record it, and you know, so it was a, it was a really long process of like trial and error because it was at a time when things were changing from just like regular recording to MIDI and like you know, so it was a crossover between like I mean I suppose like nowadays they would call it analog, like digital, mm. you know, and back then yeah it was like live and um, computer, you know, it was I mean it was kind of pre-computer but. Um, yeah, it was at a time where, you know, you was you starting to use machines to do some of the processes that you, that would have been done live, and um, and for the type of music, it, it, you know, it needed to to be like that. You know, you, you I mean, like basically, it was just about the, the start of like this industrial type thing. And like, I basically I grew up in an industrial city, and I thought, wow, this is my music. This is how we do it. You know, what I mean, like it's all kind of like mechanical and you know this you know so you really kind of got into the way that the process w was and like you know it became like uh, like a doctrine for me I could have easily played the bass like but it was for me actually playing having the computer or having a sequencer play play a bass was um kind of a lot more 
kind of part of the scene of of what I was doing. You know what mm. I mean? It's like if you was a realist painter, you would paint in a certain way. And you know, I seen the art form as something that had to be kind of sculpted together with machines. So that's it. I mean, um, you talked about it in terms of my music and my sound with the type of music that we're discussing. Was this the first time where you really felt like in your core, I identify with this thing? This is, you know, this is mine, maybe in a way that music, other music I was into belonged to other people or other generations. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was um, something that, I mean, like it borrowed from all these other things. And at the same time, it was growing. I felt I was growing with it. So I was like, well, you know, it's obviously I'm if I'm growing with it, if like it's there and like I'm I'm kind of not being left behind in it. It's it's basically it's um building itself around me, then it must be something to do with me or it's mine or, you know, or it's I'm part of what it what it is. Yeah. I mean you you must have had the sense like I'm here, I'm I'm kind of in this on the first floor, you know, I'm I'm seeing this from its like grassroots stages. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you, you didn't know if there was gonna be another level level. You know, you were just basically working with what you had. I mean, like in the in the early days there was no or very little sampling. I mean, we was very aware of like um what was happening with sampling, but it was just way too expensive. Like sampling was like the high end, you know, like sampling was like Art of Noise or Peter Gabriel, you know what I mean, using the Fairlight or... So it's pretty much stuff that was only available in like high end studios yeah, at that point, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, basically when the um, Akai came along, the MPC 60, it just kind of, I mean like the, what was it before the MPC 60, it was the rack mounted stuff like the S950 or the S900, the S1000 basically made like sampling accessible to like people in what you would call a bedroom studio or whatever. So I totally got straight into that because like, I mean, I had all these ideas and stuff like that I was doing with the like, analog stuff that you can only do so much or you can only shape so many sounds and you, you would never get the, the, sa the same sound. So, you know, sampling was a, a way into that. You know, it was like a, a real um, jump. It was like a, in the early days, you would still process, you know, so you wouldn't just sample like a snare drum and like that would be the snare drum. You would sample it and then you would put it through an envelope and then you would put that through a revert, you know, so you would still treat the sound. You would want to own everything that, you know, you had, especially in the the mid kind of sampling era times where, where it's, they started to sue people and stuff so the game was to try and yeah. disguise your sounds so that nobody would understand it you know i mean or no one would recognize it sorry which was really useful i thought because it just added to the to the skill that you needed you know and like um especially in the kind of early days of like um post rave early jungle you know, it was like basically you would be showing off your skill as a producer with what you could disguise, you know. So you would take like the the most known sample or whatever and then you would like totally cloak it or, you know, you would find a, a new way of using the sampler to cut it up. You know? Right, so you could say to your friend, oh, you never guess what that is. Exactly. <laughs> it was, that was the game. I mean, like for me, you're like, you know, and you would, 
you'd like totally cut things up and rip them apart and yeah you know you would you could use the same break as somebody else you know or you would even sample from their track and but you would just totally rip it apart in a way that you know no one had thought of or whatever it was really exciting you know it was it was competitive it wasn't just like okay um that was a big hit i'm going to take that because there was no hits there was it, it kind of felt like there was nothing to lose yeah sure you know so you would just go you know you, you, but you was part of a scene it would be like you know i suppose like um like before pro skating was about you'd have all these people doing these crazy stunts and stuff like that but like once once they started to skate for real then you'd have to have like certain rules and things and like you know anyway yeah it was it was kind of similar you know are you still looking for that sort of technological kick these days are you still looking for something that could like you know make you look at sound differently or are you still like t chasing that sort of buzz would you say yeah, always. Yeah, yeah I've okay. never. I've, I think that's probably my problem. I've never left it alone. I've not, I should go to myself. Oh wow, you know. Um, let me just make some stuff like Skrillex or someone like that, and you know, see if I can like go wah, 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 instead of like using B lines and stuff. But um, no, I, I mean, I I actually enjoy it. Um, and there's always there's always an, another level for me. I always feel there's a, there's another step and. It's not actually just stopped at like what you can do in a studio. Like now, I want to process the the club environment. You know, um, I really want to make a club environment that is, um, and I'm sure it's possible, like a, like a studio, because like there's no one that actually has heard music that like it, how it's heard in a studio. I don't think. I mean, like how, how do I how explain it? How it sounds in the studio is totally different to how it sounds in a, a club say like because you don't have the same you don't have the same acoustics you know so like you say like a lot of the stereo imaging is lost say and like you know if you put depth into your music and stuff a lot of that can be lost because of um, distortion mm. in a club and I would love to create something where it was actually the club environment would actually absorb like the excess sound, so you could actually hear the depth. That, just, like, really, that simple. Yeah, no, but I see. Not not only that, but um, just change the whole setup. So, like, instead of having like this guy on a podium, who's basically could be miming, who knows? You know, like have like a, a thing right in the middle of, of the dance floor, and like, um, I mean, for me personally, I would have like all the machines kind of in a circle. So I could run around in a circle and mm. like kind of like sequence and change things around. And like basically them guys who kind of just go up to the DJ box and kind of like stare stare at the, what's going on could then go back to the dance floor and like hang out Yeah, there. no, I see. Not only that, but I could actually, I wouldn't need, because I'd be playing live, I wouldn't need monitors. So I could like actually be hearing exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. Um, I think it was uh, Bernd Friedman in an interview and we did last year raised this idea that um, the way that we have monitoring set up in a club is actually based on like an outdated idea of like yeah. performance and like um, you'd have instruments on the stage to have them away from, yeah. or sorry, the microphones on stage yeah, yeah. to have them away from the PA. Exactly. But we don't actually have this problem, yeah, like exactly. this type of music. So yeah. why wouldn't you be in the field of the, of the, exactly. of the system? Yeah, yeah, it's totally, I mean, like, we'd, like back then they were dealing with what you would call live noise. And, I, yeah. I, and like now it's, it's 
basically is there's a lot of the stuff that is like amplified and stuff a little bit but like it's all internal so there's no there's very little feedback you know or none at all you mm. know usually so I mean it does seem crazy that yeah. the DJ would or the performer would be hearing a different signal exactly, than those, the yeah. person uh, the people on the on the I floor hate it. I absolutely I always turn it off if I you know like most of the time and like try and listen to these speakers that are like right, you know they're right in front of me I can't I mean I can't really hear them as much as but like if, once I turn the monitors off I can actually get a, a little bit of a feel of what the people are, are hearing and because I'm controlling everything from like the hi-hat to, to the bass I can actually kind of balance things out a lot easier than like if I can't hear it I mean because like I've got I mean usually I'm, I'm playing like material that is like uncompressed and stuff and like it's not being mastered it's just because it's basically being done live and creating it live in the club mm. so it'd be really nice to actually monitor it like at the same time as I'm, I'm making it sure know? and uh, you know especially as you seem to be someone who has this idea or like your your brain seems to function in a way um, where you're thinking about sound in terms of uh, the frequencies a lot and sculpting the sound mm. and you talked before about like the sounds gelling together and kind of like sculpting the frequencies in that yeah. way so hearing what's actually it's very it's really important to, to hear what's what's going on because i mean like you you can actually create really nice environments you know i mean there's a lot of like audio illusions you can create and all that um people basically they would i think they would really enjoy it you know and they, they it actually makes people you can create feelings of well-being just by the sound itself, you know, if it's played in the right way in the right environment. Mm. So, but you have to actually hear it yourself at the same time. So that makes sense. Yeah, it'd be nice. Are there things that sort of come along in the last five to ten years that you've maybe made you think about music production in a different way, or do you have like favourite new advancements or like plugins or synths or something that have, uh, you know, really pushed things forward mm. for you? I mean, the first thing for me, the computer. Yeah. I mean, like, when, when I started to use a computer, actually, I think it was 2003 or four. Before that, I was I was using a sequencer and um, basically recording onto tape still. Like, a lot of people, I mean, like, from the early jungle days, they were using Ataris and stuff. I had an Atari, but I was using it to automate my desk. But, um, yeah, once I started to use a computer I, um, to actually produce music, I was, like... Um, blown away by what you could actually do, you know, like the depth that you could go into it. I mean, I felt that I'd been missing out on a lot, you know what I mean, mm. by just like using like just the, the hardware stuff all the time. And then I noticed that I was actually using it in a little bit of a different way than most people. I was still using, the, even though I was using the computer, I was still using it like a tape deck. So I would be recording stuff linear and then going back and then doing like a mix later on. So you hadn't really like dug into the capabilities necessarily. Yeah. 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 But like that was that was really cool. And then like um then later on, like the, the synths, uh, I realized that, you know, the a lot of them were open ended and I started to I'd say like I have a synth that only had like um maybe a couple of like envelope generators on it or whatever and then you know, then all these kind of software since came out that you, where you could actually build your own generators and then like eventually you could build your own synths. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, <laughs> you know, why are people slagging this stuff off? You're building a synth that generates tone. 
you know, and it's up to you how the tone sounds. You can't, you know, and then I realized, hang on, it's another generation of people. And like, then I f kind of thought, okay, so if these people were back in the days where you would walk into a shop and see an SH-101 or something on the stand, they would have been like, there's no sound in this, you know, or it sounds like, you know, it's like really plasticky or whatever. Because yeah. they wouldn't have, you know, recognized that you actually have to chisel the sound out yourself. You have to actually make what it does. You, you can't, because like now they just download the sound or or a, a, they, they use presets. I mean, like years ago, it's like you'd go into the shop and you'd, you'd kind of play around with a keyboard and you'd be like, Oh my God, it's like, you know, that's the preset. So you'd instantly, you'd get busy and you'd try and stretch the synth to its capabilities. You wouldn't just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't take the preset as gospel, you know? And like, then I've, I've kind of watched some young people doing like um, production and stuff and they'll download a synth and then they'll go through all the banks of presets without actually stopping on one and like, kind of tweaking it about and making it as something else. I'm like, sort of reverse engineering yeah, it or like, something. Yeah. Hell, it's like, you know, you actually, that what you get isn't what, you know, yeah. what you're given isn't what it has to be. You know, you, you can, I mean, like, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what all the little knobs are for. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, if you're thinking about then and now, do you think there are any downsides to, like, modding recording setups? Probably, yeah. I think probably the just the over um, accessibility to everything. Sure. Probably. Yeah. I mean, like, because I think one of the things that I call it a karate in a way, basically having having less can be more. You know, like having basically having to make do with with what you've got. You know, stretching it to its capabilities instead of like trying to do like. Um, one thing and then throwing it away and like you know you, you kind of lose passion and lose ideas i think you you need to grow with with something because i mean like say with like the drum machines and synths from the past i felt i was growing with them you know i mean i'd learn how to use them and i'd learn even though it, it sounded the same as what somebody else was doing you'd found that you could make your own thing from it if you kind of just worked with it and then you got used to doing it so much just over time that you could just do it with your eyes closed you know what i mean and, and like if you can't work i mean if you can't find a sound with you know with your eyes closed then it's gonna sound totally strange you know what i mean so yeah i mean do you personally succumb to like the abundance of choices do you find yourself also getting a bit bogged down in like all of the options um, these days no but i do, I do have some some favorite synths. I kind of have a backlog of things to go through synths and stuff that I need to to go through. But like I've got this habit of not throwing anything away because like I never grew up with that with with synths and stuff. So so I'll go through and I, I kind of I'll go through it with a fine tooth comb in a way. I've got like um, a way of just you know going through the sequences. I'll first try it out for for bass sounds and stuff. And you know, like the best thing to do is like you know, if, if they've got if there's a preset that has like you know, it's like a string preset. You know, you can like you know, with the envelopes and stuff, you can change that into a bass sound, which has never been obviously 
heard before because it was always been that string. So, you know, I, I kind of try and switch stuff around and like mess with, if you can get inside it, I mean, like, you know, I'll try and mess with the waveforms or the samples or, you know, and then and then there's the other level is actually layering where you can like, usually there's a lot of these things where you can layer stuff and, and uh, make something from that, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's pretty endless. So if you limit yourself to one, one machine at a time, and then you discover it's um, basically it's pros and it's cons and like basically, you know, you could go into circuit bending it or whatever, but you know, if you can like actually work with that machine, then, you know, even when you're like, oh, okay, you know, it doesn't have the sound that I want, I want to use something else. Or you, you've seen the ad for that other synth, that sounds really cool. I mean, like, you know, you still, I think if you just stick with it, I mean, because, I mean, like, it was so easy now. I mean, like, back then, it's like you had a SH-101 and I'm looking at the Jupiter 8 thinking, wow, if only I had a polyphonic synthesizer. But then, you know, I found a kind of way to create, like, a, like almost like a, a vibrating waveform that almost sounded like it was polyphonic or something, you know what I mean? But then that comes out sounding like something else, you know? Like so, you you never know. I mean, like say like with, with Voodoo Ray, it was like a it was monophonic synths, and I wanted a bass sound that sounded like it was like polyphonic. So I, I mean, it didn't come out like that in the end. But like what I did, I recorded like the bass three times, you know. And each time I I, I recorded it, I um I was um, modulating like how the bass was, and like mm. there's certain points where it crossed over where like all three kind of were oscillating in a certain type of way, which created like some kind of weird metallic sound. Yeah, sort of the relationship between the yeah. different lines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you never know what's possible with like experimentation, you know what I mean? You just have to, and so like, if, you, if you're trying to reach a goal and you're experimenting, you know, you could, you know, you'll, on the journey, you'll probably find something else. And that's what that taught me actually, that you know, use your limitations to, and like, if you've got no limitations, then try and limit yourself. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so if, um, have you ended up with kind of an insane amount of gear at home? Um, you, you're saying yeah. you've never really sold much stuff over yeah, the yeah. years. Yeah, I mean, I've, there's there's loads of gear. I mean, there's like some of it that's broken and like smashed up, and but I still got it. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, I mean, usually I have like a, a few days of kind of trying to mess around with few bits and pieces but most of the time I'll just kind of go into the computer it's easier yeah. <laughs> so where are you based these days actually in um, Soho at the moment but um, I've got a studio in Hackney oh, okay uh, so, so how long have you been back in the UK now since December since December okay because yeah. you're in Berlin for it was a good few years wasn't it it's like 10 years right 10 years there um, it was really cool I mean like I didn't kind of didn't really do that much of the the party scene, party party scene there. I mean, it was more kind of local. I was um, kind of part of a art house or Kunsthaus called Attackerless. And um, I did a lot of work there with, with them, like um, kind of trying to do little bits of, bits of fundraising for them and basically trying to get things off the ground there and like help out. Um, because they were like left of of center and like well it was under threat for a long time wasn't yeah, it yeah basically yeah and um like the government wasn't really helping out like they should have done or they 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 did but then in the end they 
kind of got the Hells Angels to come in and kick him out <laughs> and sold the building. So what was the dispute over exactly? Was it just like a sort of classic Berlin squatting situation or? No, I mean, like there was actually, there was rent being petted, but it was like it was funded by the government too. But um, there was a bit of a squabble between like the people that were upstairs and the people that were downstairs. And, you know, a lot of things were being left by the wayside that should have been looked at. You know, and Berlin was changing at the same time. So, yeah. like, you know, the banks saw, like, you know, a bigger value for the place. You know, like, it was like, wow, you know, we could do this or whatever. Because so. it's in a really central location, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's like banks, like, in the centre. It's right, it's like, round the corner from the Reichstag, basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you end up feeling quite at home at Berlin? Yeah, oh, yeah, I was there uh, 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, yeah, I was totally, totally at home there. And, uh, I mean, when I first got there, it was there was like so much. Um, it was like a blank canvas, and there was just so much room for experimentation. They, they mm. um, musically, they kind of had discovered like one brand of techno kind of thing, in a way. And I felt that um, working there, I could like you know show different like levels of what. You know, modern electronic dance music was about, or electronic music. Yeah. So yeah, by the end, I had like um, a, a theatre that that I could use like um, any time. So I used to have a theatre to record in and all sorts. It was, oh wow! It was lovely. I used to. Was it a tough decision to leave in the end? Yeah, yeah. It was totally. Um, I was a little bit sad because I was like, well, you know, I've got to kind of go back and in one way, but then in another way, it's like you know. It's it was time. I mean, like ten years, like in in the same place, kind of thing. You know, that's a, I think that's the longest I've ever spent anywhere. Like I was in New York for about five years, I think, before I left there. So, yeah, it was. I mean, it was nice. It was nice to kind of be there and like be part of a community that was. Um, they were really progressive, really creative, and they were kind of. I mean, they still are. And they, you know, they they do they do their own thing and they do their own festivals, and you know it's all kind of self-funded, and they actually show showed me that you know you could be independent in art and still do something creative and make it work. For sure, you know, yeah. So. I mean, I guess there is a um, sort of prevalent DIY spirit in the city that you perhaps don't get elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Because they basically they had to make do, you know what I mean? There was no, there was no one that was going to help, kind of thing. So they had to help each other, you know. And it was like this, I suppose um, you would call it socialist type of working. I mean, originally the Tacklist was um, a place where, when the wall came down, it was a place where artists all over the city could go. And eat for nothing, so there would there would be people making sandwiches there and and tea and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a soup kitchen for poor artists, and then eventually, like you know, artists move into there, and there was like loads of different people have been through there. It's got a crazy history. I mean, if you have a look at the Wikipedia of the Tacklist, I think it's probably tacklist.de.de. Um, you probably see the. Um, like a bit of the history of the building and what it was. I mean, it's amazing what what's kind of what had happened there. And I've met some like amazing people that had been through there that um, kind of made me kind of look at stuff in a way that you know 
if you if you believe in what you're doing, then you know you have to really go for it and like not kind of sell out, so so to speak. So yeah, they they really kind of encouraged that, and yeah, I was, I was really um, really happy to be there actually and part of that whole thing. And if uh, people are strolling down the Ranienbergerstrasse, they should look out for the building with your big face on the side of it. Is it is the mural still up on the side of the building? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember these people. Do, I think it was some French people that that did that. Yeah, because I had it on. Actually, had it on my door at first. On yeah, okay. And um, yeah, they they really liked it, so they painted it on the side of the building, which was like pretty. Pretty funny at first because it was like you know you're going down the, and you're like oh my god you know there's, <laughs> there's a picture of you on the side of someone's building it's like, that was man. enormous wasn't it yeah 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 so I wanted to talk to you um, a little bit about well something that was um, really coming through club music particularly in the UK over the last couple of years which was um, people using samples of old um, hardcore and jungle records mm. like were you aware of this kind of going on over the last couple of years were you sort of like noticing more of these like original sounds coming up in, in tracks yeah 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 actually and um, I suppose it's kind of for me, looking at it, it's post two step and speed garage, they had to, you know, there was something that was, you know, these these things or these kind of sub genres or genres were borrowing from that. So the next, I think, I suppose, like the next move would be to just go straight in and yeah. like kind of use the the actual things itself. And in a way, it's kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of flattering that you know it gets to that kind of almost um, James Brown status of being sampled, you know? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> no, and I think it's a kind of incredible state of affairs in a way because, um, you know, with Juicebox and, you know, your label and some of the work you were doing in the early 90s, you're widely credited as, of, as uh, you know, laying a blueprint for what became Jungle. And at that time, you're using sounds that are themselves 20 years old. Yeah. And now we're in a position where 20 years later, people are picking up on those sounds again. So I wondered if you had like an opinion on just like what it is about these sounds that, that you know makes them have such an enduring quality. Like, why are we still fascinated by things like the Aim and Break, for example? Yeah. I think it's it's rawness, isn't it? It's like I mean, it's got it's got a history and all, but like the actual energy of it, the raw energy of how it how it works. And I think um, if people actually looked, I mean, if you if you actually broke it down. You know, you, you, it's the syncopation. You know what I mean? The, the actual, it doesn't, it doesn't let up at any time. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it, it's there's a pattern to it. It's like you know the, what do you call it the the golden circle kind of thing. You know, it's got it's got this balance to it. So like where you know where it ends, it begins kind of thing. And you know, I mean that's so I always try and look for in like when I'm trying to create a beat or when I'm chopping something up is like try and create this. This energy circle in in within like the actual groove itself, um, because it's I mean it's I mean it's so easy with a machine just to go with, like just the the step of what the machine is, which like basically starts and it ends. Yeah, I mean I I kind of got into this loop science thing earlier on, and um, I used to do all sorts like um, I would kind of grab you know like a load of knives and stuff and kind of drop them on the floor and you know, do a field recording and then loop it and then like you know 
grabbed like you know part of it that sounded like it was the most syncopated and then like mm. create like a whole groove around that kind of thing like so it's this idea of trying to come away from linearity because yeah. i guess if you think about like a, a jungle break for example like it, what you picture in your mind is something more circular yeah, rather yeah. than it going in a straight line yeah yeah exactly. not articulating that in a great way but yeah, you know no, what no, i mean yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it is it's something that's kind of it can actually travel and all. I mean, like the I think the best stuff kind of starts off really sparse and then it really builds up into this kind of crazy kind of thing and maybe drops off or dies down again. I think over time, because of um, like sampling technology and looping technology and stuff and the amount of samplers that are available and how cheap they are, basically all this affects the way that the music actually develops. And um, I think that a lot of it is basically, it's regurgitated and regurgitated so much so that it needed to go back to the to the beginning. Because like, it, I mean, it, it got really, I mean, not ridiculous, but it just got to like a state where it was unrecognizable for me anyway, as a form of something that I could dance to. Even, sure, yeah. You know, I mean, that happens like so many times, that pattern. I remember um, in the early 80s listening to like Wizkid and like all these people cutting and scratching like Jam Master J and people like that. And it was like there was a real musicality to, to what they were scratching. But um, by the time it came to when the DMC was invented, then it became more of a sport. And then like, you know, you it would go out to a dance and there would be someone there practicing for DMC. <laughs> You'd be like, hang on a minute, like, you know, like let the track, Go, let it go, let it go for a bit. Let us, let I, was, I was enjoying let, that. Let yeah. us hear, yeah, yeah. So you know, and th yeah, that basically that kind of thing starts starts to happen where you know you you they lose the the danceability by getting so technical. You know, if it gets too technical, you can kind of veer off from the actual groove. And I mean, I've been guilty of that myself. You know what I mean? Where you just kind of just go off into. Like, uh, it's not even jamming anymore. It's just like yeah. <laughs> this crazy, crazy sound or whatever. I'm really interested to know about the sort of transition period for you between when you were making kind of the earlier Acid House tracks into something that was more resembling what would become Jungle with things mm. being sped up. Like, I wonder if you could tell us about what that sort of time was like for you and whether it was something that was like, really was intrinsically linked with the technology that was available to you. I mean, was it a case of like, okay, the sample time is now this and therefore I can achieve this? Like what mm. sort of gets us from A to B, would you say? Well, I kind of started off like wanting to do like really experimental like acid and like, like basically I was limited at home because of like studio space, well studio equipment and like stuff like that. Then I I did a deal with uh, a major record label because I wanted to basically to get more equipment and like have, have a space where I could create, like I'll go deeper into like this acid thing. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that like, they weren't behind that idea. They wanted pop records. <laughs> So I, um, I kind of, I was getting more and more agitated, and at, at, around about the time as I'm getting agitated, like the whole scene is um, kind of growing from acid through into like kind of more kind of rave. Yep. Then the samplers come into play, and you know, 
I kind of, I get hold of a sampler and, you know, I'm trying to explain to the, to the people at the label that, you know, like, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll get a girl in with big tits to sing at the front, like, black box, but, you know, I really need to experiment with, like, this sampler stuff and, like, get, you know, because there's, a, there's another direction happening here at the same time as Snap or whatever, you know what I mean? There's a lot of this stuff where I come from on the street, like, where things are developing, and they're not interested whatsoever, you know what I mean? And, like, in, I... I you know, like, I think they should have been interested because I was, like, kind of like, look, I've, I can be a man on the street, you know what I mean? I yeah, can... like, I'm, I'm trying to give you the next mutation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, you know, like, you know, I'm honestly, I'm I'm not not just doing this for myself. <laughs> and um, I could have been, like, the one going, ah, the MP3s are coming. <laughs> but anyway, there was a turning point where there was a few people, like, um, asking me, like, for plates, dub plates. And... Um, I was with this label who like refused for me to give away any of my material until it was released. And I was like, it's not working like that on the street. You know what I mean? They just did not want to know. So I um, kind of slowly backed away from a bit of it. I'd, I'd done an album for them. It disappeared into the annals of their thing. It was like an album with vocals and it was called High Life, Low Profile. Never, never got released. It kind of disappeared into their thing. But at the same time as I was doing that album, I was also doing like a load of this stuff with like breaks and stuff. I was experimenting with High Life Low Profile was kind of like a crossover kind of thing. There was a lot of kind of breaky type stuff, some acidy type stuff, but mm. with songs. You know, there's a few songs in there and a few like, you know, actually I think one or two of the things probably was similar to some of the stuff that were on 20, 28 Gun Bad Boy, the album. But like they didn't want to know at all about this stuff, and I was like, well, you know, at one point they weren't returning calls or anything. I was uh, so I was like, okay, well, I guess I should just do my own thing. So I, I contacted um, like a distribution company, and like actually my my um, agents at the time started a distribution company too. Decided to to start like a little label myself because I needed to put this stuff out because I, I thought, wow, it's you know, it's it's a bit kind of left of center, I'm really like into how it is. And I've been going to like some of these parties where they play this kind of music. Mm. So I started to put some of this music on on white label, put it out. The next thing you knew, I was getting a call from like some people down in London saying, yo, you need to come down here, man, to check out what's going on because like it's pretty, it's kicking off. So I went down, it was like, I think it was Goldie actually called me up and he was like, you know, come down to check out what's, what's happening down here. So I went and I was listening to, like people like Groove Rider and Fabio playing, and I was like, oh my God, you know, this is... Because I'd heard like some of the stuff that was going on already from like on the radio and stuff. It was kind of almost like post, post rave. It was a little bit raw and, than rave. One of the first thing I heard, it was a Nicolette album called Now Is Early. And um, that was like songs, but like with breaks and stuff like that. And uh, um, Shut Up and Dance, I think it was the Shut Up and Dance guys. That, that did that. I was like, this is totally us, you know what I mean? It was like, wow, you know, it's it's like the the reggae influence from the background, like all the kind of hip hop and breakbeat that we'd grown up with, and also like new wave and electronic. It was like basically all gelled into one. I was like, oh my God, you know, like how could I even like think of looking back to just using like a synth anymore, you know what I mean? Like this actually 
as a way that I can use utilize synths and sampling and recording and going forward. You know what yeah. I mean? There was like so much space in front. I had to kind of just stick with doing this label and like you know I was I think I was releasing one EP every month and just like putting I was actually still using the the, the record labels. Um, Cutting mastering plays to to do mastering because they never they never got back to me. I mean, I was I would call them, and like you know there was oh, there were obvious, I could imagine there was someone there. Oh no, it's him again, and you know they wouldn't answer my calls. And I was like you know going oh you know I was going to be like this. Oh, there's this thing happening by the way. If you wanted to know, they were like interested in like Michael Jackson's next big hit. You know what I mean? I was like well. Fair enough, you know, like, you know, there's things happening down here that maybe you need to know about. Yeah. But, you know, anyway. To kind of look back on that time, it was just seen as such as like fiercely creative and uh, innovative uh, periods in uh, dance music. Did you have the sense at the time, like maybe um, for yourself and the producers, like your, your peers, that you you really were doing something that was like really forging forward? Like, what was the atmosphere like, like among uh, you um, know in the scene at the time? Well, I mean, I don't know what it was like for a, a lot of other people. I mean, like they were a lot of them were kind of well there's a few of them were looking up to me like wow I can't believe that you're kind of interested in doing like this music because you're like you're like the guy from Voodoo Ray and whatever and I was like you don't understand like this is you know like this is us this is like I mean like everything that about this is like what's happened you know what I mean like before like there was some stuff that came from America and we were like kind of well imitating it in a way but like we were utilizing that as usual that's what we know we've always done or we know when we've done reggae we've done like stuff from Jamaica and you know what I mean? Or we've done like kind of pop, but like this is actually something that is from the street, from like the concrete parts of uh, of England or Britain, Great Britain. You know what I mean? This is a sound that's never been here before. You know what I mean? And it's basically come out of all the junk that we've like basically glued together that we've had here. You know, like listen to it. Wow. You know what I mean? Of course, I'm not going to be like you know. Yes, I'm the Lord of this and black. You know, like this is this is all of us together, you know what I mean? Like everyone that was like raving who basically came together in the early rave days. I mean, like, you know, black, pink, white, purple with spots on, like poor, like, you know, this is this is us and like, listen to it. Wow, so it was really local. Didn't think about it being anywhere else at all. You know what I mean? It was like only on the pirate radio stations and that's all I would listen to. Or Actually, I would come down to London, because we only had two pirate radio stations in Manchester. So I would come down to London and listen to the pirates and be like, oh my God, you know, like there's this going on and that going on. And there was all sorts of different things happening. And, you know, the energy was like amazing, like considering like, you know, there was no kind of major kind of funding and stuff. People were kind of, it was like self, self kind of rewarding where like the, could have like about half an hour of adverts on the radio station and that was just like how many dances that were going on that weekend you know what I mean and like you know and then this person then you'd hear a new track and then there was all sorts of different kind of systems going on like where you know like music houses where a lot of the stuff was like being cut and stuff but like you know a DJ would go down there or a producer DJ would go down there with like um, a load of mixes and he would have a different mix for each DJ you know what I mean? And he would know the style. He'd know that, like, Randall's, like, um, mixing was different from Groove Rider's mixing. 
the way you would do the mix or like the intro or whatever, it, it would be for their style, you know what I mean? There's a lot it's of stuff like this going on. Yeah. yeah, you know, so there's a lot of things suited to to the DJ and so he would, so that they could cut plates that would be for their, the way that they would spin so it, it fits into their system. So I was like totally blown away by this. I was like, oh my God. So, you know, when that first started to happen, I was still kind of with this like major record label kind of thing and I was like so jealous. I was like, oh my God, like, you know, they're allowed to make tunes for like DJs that are getting played. Where my yeah. stuff is like, basically, they wanted me to do like this big thing and then go on a tour of this place that was totally outside of my kind of zone, you know sure. what I mean? Did you come to regret that decision with signing for a major or like, how'd you look back on that? Um, no, it was an experience. I mean, sure. it was something that if I didn't do it then, I might have been caught in that trap later on you know like um I, I learned a lot of things I was like a I was a, like a fly on the wall at that time you know and I could I could see what they wanted and I could see how innocent and kind of greedy they were <laughs> I mean the music kind of was just like a product but like they never really looked inside of to me anyway what I could see was that they didn't really look inside how people would want it you know what I mean they just basically wanted to dish it out you know in volume you know what I mean? And the important thing was the volume and not that sure how people, you know, were interested in like so if there was a smaller smaller group of people, you know what I mean, they would be totally overlooked. You know what I mean? Where I was I was kind of like coming from a, an opposite way, you know what I mean? Where I, I grew up in communities where a lot of the music we were listening to never got heard anywhere else outside of that community. You know what I mean? Or in little pockets all over all over the country, so you know, and I, I wanted to, to cater for, for them people sure. in what I was doing. So, I mean, how much were you traveling in the kind of like jungle heyday? Um, like, how much were you getting to play abroad? Um, a lot, a yeah. lot. Um, the, the kind of peak of it would have been like in '93, '94. I was kind of do, doing this thing, it was mainly Europe, okay, but um, it was kind of doing this like kind of what we would call sowing the seeds kind of thing where we would just right, go okay. to somewhere and like, you know, there'd be some rave or something going on and like it's coming with some beelines and sure. like it broke it, you know, smash it up kind of thing. And they'd be like, oh my God, what's going on? So it was, I mean, it was, it was interesting because like it was, it was kind of like an introduction, but like, I think what blew it up was um, when it hit the States and it was things like, I think originally, before, I mean, like before, like even metalheads or anything like that was happening, like um, over there, there was, I think, somehow like this. Well, original not that sour, sour that that happened, and when that once that hit there, like a whole kind of thing happened. I, I kind of think it was underground. Later on, when I moved there, I think I moved there in like ninety seven, yeah, ninety seven, ninety eight. I think I moved moved over there. And I started to kind of like kind of delve into what happened in America with, with jungle. How did they actually kind of get hold of it? And like, you know, it was their jungle was totally different. But like because, you know, like it was what they'd actually got was like um like not the really kind of technical stuff and they didn't they didn't have like, you know, like we had all this like kind of reinforced and all that and like moving shadow and we had, you know, it went through different periods depending on like what 
kind of month it was even, you know what I mean? It was like kind of like a time where it was like really dark and then there was another time where there was this like other thing going on, you know what I mean? But like they just got like this kind of, they got the amen and like sort of like the the kind of jump, they got jump up and because, you know, we was always on like kind of what next, you know what I mean? Because, you know, it changed so many times. You were just like waiting. You never knew what was going to happen. So you were just waiting for the, to them. It was like, okay, rock and roll or whatever, jungle. That's it. You know what I mean? That's it's just happening like as it is. Um, were, were there other countries that it sort of took hold in particular? There's a few different places. Um, like, like going back now, I think um, another place I can remember was Switzerland. Really? Was like where it totally it was tearing it up. It was totally tearing up Switzerland. Um, I think a part of part of Germany. Like, definitely, there's like little places in Germany where it was having it. Mannheim, definitely. <laughs> I can't remember off by heart now, but like when when we was on a little tour, we had to kind of I don't know. We had to like run around and like kind of explain to certain people what was what was happening, you know what I mean, before it was almost like there, was, there had to be some kind of preparation before we went and did this thing. More like this is about to hit you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. It's not, it's not the same as like the, you know, the, but some people were expecting it, you know what I mean, which was really cool. So to sort of um, take your story back to the place where like lots of people know you from, Manchester, mm. and yeah. you know, this is definitely an era you must have been... Um, asked about like millions of times before what I kind of wanted to know or was interested to know is like you know with with the time with the passage of time and this sort of thing how do you view like the way that that story has been told like you know you you think about you have your classic stories connected to like Manchester Hacienda those mm. sorts of things like are you kind of satisfied with the way that that story's been told over the years do you think more people or different people deserve the limelight like how do you sort of view it well, yeah, there's been like loads of kind of different stories, and like obviously the the thing that's the movie kind of sticks with that twenty four hour party people kind of, which is, I suppose you've only got a certain amount of time in a movie to explain certain things in a way, you know what I mean? So a lot of things were kind of skipped over, and I mean I was I was kind of um, a little bit disappointed that like. Um, the kitchen was like this after hours didn't play more of a part in the in the movie you know what i mean because i mean for me that's that was where a lot of stuff kind of happened you know what i mean there's a lot of things that you know people that kind of went there and um even before then i mean like the the dance scene in manchester was kind of it was really healthy you know um before i think the thing is with the hacienda it kind of brought indie together with with dance but before then i mean there was like so many dance places all i mean all around the north really you could actually go all the way back to northern seoul and yeah. and follow the progression right through to to the hacienda if you were really going to get deep about dancing in the northwest you yeah because i guess things like wigan casino like not a million miles away from no, it's down the road and like yeah. you know i mean like when i was growing up the whole thing was about all dayers and all nighters and like there was DJs like um, Greg Wilson, Chad Jackson, even um, Kev Edwards, um, Ewan Clark. Um, there was like there was a million and one DJs that were going around back then, and like you know, the dance music kind of went from like electro funk to jazz funk to northern soul, and all this stuff kind of 
was like floating around since like I mean I, I mean I remember it from 83 onwards you know what I mean and it was like I could go out every night of the week to a dance club you know in Manchester without going to the Hacienda you know so you know, it was, you know, there was a lot of stuff happening. I mean, I suppose you couldn't really put that. I mean, if someone was really going to do, like, the dance history of, of the Northwest or something like that, then, you know, I suppose it would be Greg Wilson doing something like that because he's, like, pretty... He's pretty good at that, isn't he? <laughs> and again, um, you know, this is a, a subject that's, like, been brought up a million times with you in interviews, and I just really wanted to know uh, what your relationship is like with your most famous track these days. Like, mm. can you still stand to hear it? Do people still ask you to play Voodoo Ray? They, they ask all the time. Do they, yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I remember, like, probably, it was probably, like, um, 10 years ago now, I did a really horrible thing where I'd got, like, every mix that I'd ever been. <laughs> like, someone asked for it at, at a gig, and I just went, okay. And I just started playing it. <laughs> like, about, like, half an hour later, I was still playing... Voodoo Ray, you know what I mean? And like they were like, ah, I fucking hate you, I do fucking hate it. But like when you play it though, well when I play it, it's like they never want you to stop playing it, you know what I mean? It's like, well, I'm not gonna come to a place and play like the first track that I'd I'd kind of ever done, like out forever and ever and ever. You know what I mean? It's like it's not not gonna happen. Like yeah, you try know. and see this from my position. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you have to, you know, I I mean I usually say to them, what you know, what were you doing like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you know what I mean? Well, you do the same thing that you was doing and then I'll do that and oh, that'd be really cool, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's, I mean, like, I, I mean, it's it's nice, you know, if you, if it's like someone's birthday or something and it usually is, you know, and you go, oh, you know, I've come all the way here and like, I wanted to hear this track. And, blah, blah, blah. and so, I mean, if I'm playing live, you know what I mean? It's a little bit harder, but I, I can usually do something, but it's like, it does get a bit tiring. But I suppose if you're playing live, it's you can kind of like chop it up a bit more. And I, I suppose with like the new like um, instruments that they have natives <laughs> and all these people, you know, you can you can actually kind of make on the spot kind of remixes. But they all, I mean, the purists want to hear the original stuff and that. What a lot of people don't know is that it was actually one of the first digital recordings. I actually recorded it on um, F1 tape, which is Betamax. You know, so when, when people go, oh, you know, like that old analog stuff, you know, I'm like, yeah, really, <laughs> <laughs> it's digital, mate. <laughs> no, I mean, with that track in particular, I find it interesting that it did seem to take a while for um, UK producers to start writing their own house and acid tracks of note like you know there was seemed to be a surprising lack if you sort of dig through the history books around that sort of early days there seemed to be a surprising lack of like homegrown house anthems if you yeah. like like why was that were people just sort of too busy having a good time like dancing to the imported stuff or like um, what's your theory well originally um i mean the way i see it, i mean i remember doing stuff with 808 state i was actually showing them what what I was using and I was like kind of so excited that the machines that I was using were the same as the machines that, well, it sounded like the same machines that these people from Chicago and Detroit was using. And um, so straight away, they wanted to form a band. <laughs> but like, so I mean, I remember we did an interview with 
a radio station, it might have been Manchester Radio, and I remember Martin going, oh, well, you know, nobody knows what this acid machine is, but, like, you know, we've got it kind of thing. And um, so basically in the early days, they, they heard the music, but, like, no one actually knew what the instruments were and stuff, you know. There was, like, people using, like, a DX7 trying to make acid sounds and stuff. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, you know, they, <laughs> they, they, yeah, didn't really know. And um, I kind of, so I had, like, a little bit of an upper hand because I, I kind of just I knew exactly what was, was going on. How? At the time. Basically, I'd followed the whole electronic music from, dance music from, well, f from 80, 81, 82 onwards. So, I mean, like, when I, the first time I went into a second-hand shop and, like, heard a Roland 808, I mean, I knew it was the same machine that was being played on Planet Rock, and I knew it was, like, the same machine on loose ends, like, I'm hanging on a string. I knew that the AIOU was like SH-101. I mean, I was basically breaking music down into its, when I was hearing it into its little bits and pieces before I'd even kind of seen a synth, you know what I mean? So, I, I mean, because I, I was, I mean, growing up, I was um, like crazily into like jazz rock, like Chick Corea and stuff like that. Actually, my favorite band was called Return to Forever which was Aldi Miola, Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, Lenny White. So I was like banging to all this stuff. And like in them days, there was no internet. So the way you would find out about an artist or what they were doing or whatever, you'd read the back of the record cover. Some of these record covers, they would have like the instrumentation, what they were playing. Like Chick Corea, Mini Moog, Micro Moog, like right. Arp Odyssey, da 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 da. So, you know, and then now when I go down to the second hand shop and I see Arp Odyssey, oh my God, Mini Moog, that's what Chick Corea plays. And then you start playing around in it. That's how I kind of learned about synths or got into synths. So, like, yeah, then you, you see the drum machines and you start hearing them and you go, oh my God, I've heard that on this track. You know, so that's kind of slight, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of one of the ways that I, I learned about these machines, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people that, I mean, they weren't really taking note of that. They were more, were more into that. I mean, I was in a, a kind of hip hop -y kind of mm. crew called the Scratch Beat Masters. And I noticed that these guys were more into the tunes than how they were made. You know, like I wanted to turn like the room that, I, that we was like DJing in, I wanted to turn it into a studio. And they were like pissed off because it was like, no, it's like, you know, it's a, you know, they were more DJs than into the, and I wanted to make the music, you know what I mean? So because I was so interested in like the, all the ingredients and more than the actual thing itself, the, the actual final process, I, I suppose that's how I got to, to know these machines pretty early on. Oh, it's it's funny that you said it took like thirty years almost to like properly warm up to the idea of live performance. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because um, I mean, I was a studio bod. I mean, like my favorite place was just like a studio. I mean, originally, I mean, like when when we did that album with, I did an album new build with Eight Hundred Eight State. I mean, I literally pulled my studio apart and set up camp in um, the studio down on um tariff street in in manchester i mean for me it was it was 
it was brilliant. It was like downstairs in the basement. There was no windows or anything. And like, you know, they had a desk down there. It was the first time I'd use a mixing desk or whatever. And like, you know, I, I kind of got to kind of hone in on what you would do in, in, in a proper recording environment. And I was like, sometimes left in there on my own, you know what I mean? And there was a studio next door. It was, it was actually, um, it was a recording engineering school, but like um, you could, um, Graham had access to it at night. So, you know, we used to get like a lot of lock-ins in there and like sometimes him and I think Martin and that, they would go off clubbing and, uh, you know, I'd be the one left in the studio. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'd kind of since then, really. It was like me, the studio, and, like, um, the, the soup machine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it is it still your happy place yes. in the world, would you say, the studio? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, are there still things that you really want to achieve, like, in your music, like, in the studio? Do you still have, yeah. like, aspirations oh, yeah, yeah, you sure. could explain? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the spatial awareness with, with, with sound and stuff like, but like um, to a level where it kind of spooks you, you know what I mean? I want it to be, you know, I want to be able to move. Like, I mean, it's, it's totally possible, you know, just like move sounds around in a way so like you feel there's a ghost going through you kind of thing. I want to do that. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense as a rave experience, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. <laughs>